Give me a moment. First John chapter one. I'm going to read from verse five down to chapter two, verse two. So first John chapter one. This is the message we heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We uh, looked last week, or last week, last time, (laughs) it's been over a month, uh, at verses 5 through 7, and about coming into the light, as being the, the real solution that God has given us, given all of mankind. We don't hide in the darkness. We remember John three, nineteen through 21, where it talks about the, the wicked hating the light. God, Jesus is the light. He has come into the world. They hate the light because their deeds are evil and they don't want them exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that everyone may see that what he's doing is true. And that was kind of where we left off. And now we want to look again at that section and finish it down to verse 10 uh, in understanding this walking in the light with God. Uh, But before we do that, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies. We thank you for the opportunity to come together, to open your word, to think upon it and examine it carefully and to store it and treasure it in our hearts. We pray, Lord, for those who are here and those who are at home, that you would, Lord, open our hearts and fill us with your word and fill us with the joy of it and understanding of it, that our lives may be new each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John, in this passage, takes on three great heresies. Uh, He wants us to understand these heresies carefully. Last time in verses 5 through 7, we saw that some some people conceded, apparently, that there was such a thing as sin, but they were denying that it was separating them from God. God loves me just as I am, and I can be with him and continue on in my sin without repentance, without a new life. All I need to do is say the magic incantation of the sinner's prayer and sit on the anxious bench, and God has to accept. And he pointed out that that was wrong. God is pure light, starting at verse 5, referring to both his perfect knowledge and his perfect holiness. Our sin, our darkness, makes fellowshipping with him and walking with him in the light impossible because darkness and light are incompatible. And if we think we can walk in our own personal darkness and sin and wickedness of life while we're still walking with him, then he says we're lying. You can't do that. You know you can't do that. It's impossible. It's absurd. If we walk in the light where our sin is exposed and dealt with, then the blood of Christ can cleanse us from all sin. And so the heresy he's moved his sight to in the next section in verse 8 is the claim of being sinless. John wants us to understand that there's no such thing as a sinless human, except Christ, 
Christ being born not of the natural manner, but of a supernatural miracle, is different. So that claim is being exposed and refuted. Note first that sin in our passage in verse 8 is singular. We're not speaking about the sins we have committed or are committing or like to commit, but more of sin as a principle. There, there, his opponents seem to be claiming or teaching that no matter what's going on outwardly, whatever sins I'm committing, it is not, not sullying me with sin so that I am separated from God, that I am separate from my deeds somehow, that I'm not corrupt and that my corruption is not producing sin. They seem to be denying some of these things. And so he's lumping them all together and giving us this answer. That if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. By sin here, we're met not only the corrupting inclination of our hearts, but the the fault, the, the guilt that comes with that before God. And I think that's really what he's addressing here. The people who deny they have guilt before God in one form or another. Now, this this passage brings to mind a, a doctrine that came about through fighting with heretics who were saying, you know, we're free and can do anything we want. And you know, salvation is totally based on me, myself and I. God has no part in it. Plagius in particular was saying that and they started looking at the Bible well we know that's wrong how do we refute this and they came up with this idea this doctrine from scripture that we call original sin Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism gives three parts for that and the first part of that is that all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation sinned in Adam and fell with Adam. Uh, That made Pelagius particularly very angry. Uh, He said, I can't be blamed for what somebody else did. That's wrong. And yet, once he said that, then many other things started to fall apart too. Uh, He said he couldn't be blamed for another man's actions that were created in the image of God. We have both the the conscience and the reason to determine right from wrong and we can carry out correct actions all by ourselves. And if there was some way in which sin could not be avoided, then it couldn't be called sin because it wouldn't be our fault. These are his ramblings in his doctrine. Uh, he was eventually rather soundly condemned as a heretic, and his heresy helped the church, uh, particularly Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce it, to bring together scripture and try and understand. You know, why does Paul say this and why does John say this and why does Peter say this? How do we understand these concerning this matter? And so basically they came to the conclusion that the whole world was imputed with the sin of Adam and condemned to die. Uh, Romans 5 has the clearest explanation of this. Many passages lead us to this understanding that we were sinful before we were born, that we were corrupted before we were born. Uh, Romans 5, starting at verse 12, says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now Paul in that passage argues that from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like Adam's, because they weren't breaking a specific verbal command of God, that death still came. Uh, They died even though they lived before the law was given, even though they lived without having been given a law. And even though sin was not counted where there is no law, he says in that passage in verse 13. In other words, they were condemned and died on the basis of the sin of Adam as their forefather, as their representative. Uh, Adam then stood as our, our representative before God as the first man. We hadn't, of course, come out of his loins yet. And as our representative, he placed himself in bondage to Satan, 
and forsook God. And so all men after him are born in bondage to Satan and separated from God. And so even though we haven't committed a sin against the word before we're born, we have that corruption in us from Adam. Uh, Understanding this imputation concept is very important, and it's going to be important in chapter 2 when we start talking about the propitiation. A big word, I got to that word when I read the Bible the first time as a new Christian, and I had to look up within the dictionary, and it didn't exist. And so I had to get a bigger dictionary (laughs) to find out what the word meant. Uh, We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next time. But understanding propitiation requires us understanding imputation. That God took Adam's sin and put it on us. He takes our sin and puts it on Christ. These are all related concepts for us to understand. And just as one act of sin caused all men to be sinners, so also one act of righteousness can bring all men salvation. Uh, Not all men, meaning each and every individual, but all men as in every kind of person, not just the Jew. That's how we would understand that. Uh, One of the most important things we learn from this, though, is why do children die? If they had no sin, they could not die. Why does an unborn child die in the womb? If there was no sin no corruption, then there would be no way they could die. And it helps us to understand that. I know that makes some people very troubled to think that, and it creates quite a bit of controversy in the church and is why people like Pelagian were able to gather so many followers together. But the idea is clearly expressed in that Romans 5 passage. Romans 5, 18 and 19 finish it up saying, As one trespass, Adam's sin, led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of all men. As one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Uh, It's clearly being taught. Even if you don't understand, you still need to accept that that's what it's teaching. How do we see this in Scripture to understand it a little better? And so the Catechism, as I said, question 18, breaks down this concept of original sin into three parts. That was the first. We have the guilt of Adam's first sin. We have a want of original original righteousness is the second part. Now, what want there means is we don't have something and we need it. We need our original righteousness that Adam had so that he could walk with God. After he sinned, he was thrown out of the Garden of Eden and no longer walked with God. And we are now separated from God because we do not have that righteousness. Now, it's important before I move on to this point too far to remember that all men there is sometimes misunderstood to mean that somehow Christ, when he died on the cross, changed original sin so it doesn't exist anymore or he cleansed it from all men. Uh, The problem with that is all the passages I'm going to read concerning this concept would all have to be wrong to understand it that way. And if Scripture contradicts Scripture and conflicts with it, we need to find a solution that allows both both parts to be true. And so this idea that you will hear from Pelagians and semi-Pelagians is basically that When Christ died on the cross, we were all made tabula rosa again, a blank slate. No guilt, no no good deeds, no bad deeds, no guilt. But that's not what Scripture teaches. In Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. In 58, Psalm 58, verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go estranged from God. They go away speaking lies from birth. You know, Scripture really does teach that when we are born, even before we are born, we have this corruption in us that Paul has explained in Romans 5. 
Uh, we've all read the verse, the passage in Romans 3, 10 and following. There's none righteous, there's no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now that's repeated, 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 and he's quoting the Old Testament, of course. But the repetition there is stressing the importance that there is no one without sin. There's no one even seeking God on their own, not the true God. They seek the gods that fulfill their desires, but not God himself. Continuing at verse 13, their throats are an open grave, their tongues practice deceit. Remember, they lie from the womb. The venom of asps is under their tongues. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they had not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 18. They have no respect, no honor, no fear of offending God. Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. Now this is part of that grand redemptive plan of God's, is that we all be under sin, so that we may all be saved and receive the adoption of sons. We know also, not only are we all bad, there's nobody good, there's nobody doing right, but we're all dead in our sin. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, we're all dead in trespasses and sin in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But I said that Adam, in choosing to follow Satan and choosing to sin, placed himself in Satan's camp. This is what he's talking about here, that you know, we are all following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working the sons of the disobedience. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All of mankind, all men, from birth on, from even before we were born, are servants of Satan enemies of God by the choice of our forefather. But that's where we are in our life or even in our brand new life. We're dead in our sin. Romans 5, 6, Paul says that we are without God. And he says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were ungodly before that. And that is why in Christ, he talks about how, Paul especially, about how we're being renewed. Colossians 3.10, put on the new self being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We once had the image of of the creator in Adam, but that was corrupted and tainted with sin. And now it's in Satan. So we need to be renewed in that. When we get to heaven, we'll be made perfect in that. But for now... You know, we still have that old body, that old self, that old life, and we need to be renewed in Christ, in the image of God. And in Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So knowledge, righteousness, and holiness are things that were corrupted in the fall and are being renewed in us now and which will presumably be made pure in heaven. Uh, the third point that our shorter catechism makes is that our original sin includes the corruption of our whole nature. This has been another one of the points attacked down through the years. Uh, man's heart is corrupt. In fact, in Genesis 6-5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Man in his basic nature, post-Adam, his heart thinks only evil. And that brought about the great flood. 
No man fears God. We read it already. There's no fear of God before their eyes, Romans 3.18. Men are hostile to God. Not just don't they fear him and don't they know him and don't they respect him. But they have hostility towards him, Romans 8, 7 and 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. Our nature is corrupted. It is evil. Ephesians 2, 3, among whom, talking about the wicked, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. I think I read that already. Our nature must be transformed. Remember Jesus in the great passage in John 3, he says, Truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of flesh is flesh. In other words, born of Adam is of Adam's kind. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It must be born again, he says in that great passage. Born again meaning born anew in the Spirit of God. With a new life, a new heart, a new birth, as we speak about often. And so we have original sin. And in denying that, what these people are doing is deceiving themselves. He says, you know, if you say you have no sin, if you say, oh, I, you know, I started out pure and innocent, I don't have sin in my life, the only sin I, you know, the only sin is the sin around me, then we're really deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We have that sin to deal with, and that's dealt with only in Christ. There's also sin in our daily life. I've probably shared this before, so I'll be very brief. Remember my testimony of the first sermon in a Bible-believing church I heard? All men are sinners. The pastor said, even me. I sin in great ways and in small ways every day. Uh, He understood. He knew that truth. And it was that truth that the Lord used to really open my eyes. Yes, not only is he a sinner, so am I. When we deny that sin, there's no way for us to be saved. We'll get to that in a few minutes, but we all have sin. This is James' point in James 3.2 we looked at a couple of years ago. We all stumble in many ways. No, we all stumble. Not most of us stumble. All of us stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. He's just said we all stumble, but we all know that nobody we've ever met doesn't stumble in what they say. We all say bad things, wrong things, sinful things. Uh, This is getting back to our sin. When we deny that fallen state, we deny that we have sin. We really can't do that and read Scripture. You know, we come to places like Paul's Lamentation in Romans 7, a very moving and stirring passage. Here's this great apostle talking about the sin in his own life. Uh, his problem apparently was covetousness. You know, he would have been a great man having his own school and having servants to take care of him and students to follow him. And He's instead roaming the world, being chased by animals and bandits and going hungry and cold and sleeping on the ground and getting sunk in the ocean when his ship sinks. And so covetousness was a problem. But you get down to verse 21 after he's talked about that. Uh, Romans chapter 7, he says, I found this law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He understood, he knew firsthand, as do we all, that there is that war still going on. There is something wrong with us that we cannot purely keep God's word. We cannot be obedient in the things even we know we're supposed to be obedient in. We stumble, we fail, 
we sin. Uh, to deny this doctrine of sin is not rational, according to John. It's self-evident. The deniers, yeah, they're confused, perhaps self-deceived, but ultimately they're devoid of truth. The truth of God's word shows us these things, and when we deny them, we're giving up on that hope. And remember what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. John, who wrote John, the book of John, also wrote the book of 1 John, and he's saying, you do not have the truth in you if you deny sin. And Jesus is the truth. You don't have Christ. But he doesn't leave us dangling at that point. I've heard sermons before where it's all pow, 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 go home. <laughs> no, John is good. In verse 9, he gives us hope. He says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Note first, though, that confession is required. We are not forgiven sins without confessing our sins, without humbling ourselves. Men may choose to overlook a minor sin or even sometimes overlook a major sin while they see somebody struggling to grow spiritually. <coughs> but God does not. Note in this verse that sins is now plural. He's not talking about the concept or about the corruption, but he's talking about the sins we commit on a continual basis. And he's calling on us to repent of those individual sins, not to repent of sin, saying, oh, Lord, I sin. I know I sin. The Bible says I sin. Forgive me. No, he's talking about our sins. Lord, I did this. Lord, I did that. You know, somebody who's feuding with you cannot simply come to you and say, oh, I've sinned, forgive me. Uh, you know, that's not satisfying to us, and it certainly isn't satisfying to God. <coughs> Sometimes people try to do that simple way, and then, you know, oh, it's done, I'm good, no more sin in me, I'm clean. You know, they vaguely say, oh, I sinned, forgive me. Call it done. They, they make up excuses. We have our list of extenuating circumstances. Oh, yes, I did this and it was in pot. Sometimes they only repent because they want the consequences to go away. Oh, yes, Lord, now that I've been caught, now that I'm facing stoning or jail or whatever, you now I'll confess my sin so that the consequence goes away. But we should really think about what Scripture has to say. Proverbs 28:13, <coughs> which we looked about on a Wednesday study recently, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, conceal, but who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So the two are set in opposition as we talked about on Wednesday. Uh, a month or so ago. Uh, we really need to expose our sin. God knows. The question is, are we willing to humble ourselves and admit it to him? And the person we've sinned against probably knows. And they may not know everything, but they know a lot, and we need to humble ourselves and confess to them as well. We need to really forsake our sin, not simply put it aside for a little bit and wait for it to be safe to take it up again. Now, I knew the story of an adulterer who, you know, he got caught, he repented in tears and sackcloth and made it all up to his wife. And once everything was going smoothly again, he went right back out and did the same thing. You know, truly a dog returns to its vomit and a sow after washing returns to the mire. As the scripture says, uh, we need to be careful that we're sincere. Uh, Peacemakers Ministries 
came up with a list of the seven A's of a biblical confession. Now they're talking about making peace between man and man, but we also need to make peace with God pretty much the same way. And I thought their ideas were really great the first time I heard it. And if you want, you can just Google that and you'll find all their, they have beautiful pictures and, you know, with rainbows and stuff and with all the things written on them. But basically the seven are, first and foremost, address to everybody involved. All those who are affected by the sin. Not forgetting God. You, know, you can't just repent to God and not repent to the person. You can't repent to the person you like and ignore the person you don't like. And this comes into play like a young couple gets found out for having a baby out of wedlock. You know, confessing to God alone isn't enough. Everybody in the church knows it's now a disgrace. Everybody who knows them knows it's now a disgrace against God. It needs to be everybody. Second, avoid words like if, but, maybe. We love to excuse our sin, right? We love to find justifications. I don't want to be humiliated, so I'm going to throw in this if. But if it had worked out this way, I could have done better. So really, I'm not a bad guy. Now, confession involves humbling ourselves. And that's very hard to do. Uh, third, admit specifically both the heart attitude and the deed. It's not enough to say to God, oh, Lord, I did this. But we need to admit to him, Lord, I did this because you know, I don't feel I have enough in you and I want more than you've given me. Or, you know, I didn't like the rules, so I made my own rule. I didn't like your word, so I discarded it. We need to say what's going on in our hearts, why we, why we sin. It's part of our admission to ourselves and to others, and especially to God. <clears throat> Acknowledge the hurt and express sorrow for hurting someone. Uh, you might think, well, God is not hurt by us. We can't wound him, but we can give him sorrow and grief, as we see throughout the scriptures. You know, he was sorrowful that he had made mankind and sent the flood. We need to acknowledge that hurt. We've hurt his reputation. Um, we've offended him by breaking his laws, and he is our king. Uh, we have offended him by sinning when he has saved us already. Uh, we need to really understand and think about that. And we talked about that again on Wednesday night a while back too, but that idea of understanding the real sinfulness of sin and the hurtfulness of sin. Then we need to expect, accept the consequences. You know, oh, I, you know, in a fit of rage, I smashed all the windows in your car. Forgive me. Uh, well, it cost me $2,000 to have them all repaired. You need to compensate me for that. And I was without a car for three days, so I had to rent one. You need to compensate me for that. Uh, there are consequences to sin, and we need to be ready to accept them. And there are consequences from God for sin. And we need to be ready to accept them. We can pray for forgiveness, but accept whatever God chooses to do. And in the case of harming others, you know, accept what they need. If you've done something like I just said, vandalizing the car, you might have to pay them restitution for the damage. And then, number six, alter your behavior. You know, repentance, a confession of sin. Oh, yes, you know, I, I uh, say in the case of adultery, I went with that man or that woman. Uh, and it was sin, and I know that. But if we don't have this will to change, to say, I don't ever want to do that sin again, because I know I've hurt you. you know, we have to have that desire to change our behavior for it to be a legitimate confession and a legitimate repentance. Right? Confession and repentance are kind of intertwined. You can't really do one without the other. And then we can ask for forgiveness. Now, especially to God, we really need to open our heart to him. We need to lay out all the details of what we've done and why we've done it. 
expose to him the full sinful reasoning that we had and seek his forgiveness and seek his help in turning away from that, acknowledging the offense that we've done to him. We need to agree with him that sin is sin. We need to agree with him that what we have done deserves his wrath, his curse, both in this life and the life to come, that we should be in hell except for his grace and his mercy. Agree with just how loathsome our sin is. You know, the easiest way to turn from a sin is to find it despicable in our own eyes. We're not going to do things we despise and hate as easily as we do things we think are good. Oh, but that's so nice. I really wish I could go back to my sin, but I won't do it. You know, what's going to happen? Well, we're offending God with the art attitude, but also we're going to stumble more easily. And it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How is he faithful? Some people seem to think that if we say the magic words, I'm sorry, God is under an obligation to forgive us, and he has no choice but to forgive us. We have bound him with our confession and repentance and request. I I said my story, now you need to forgive me, is not what this means. Um, Second mistake some people make is thinking that that's all that's required. All I need to do is confess, and it's good, I'm done, I'm forgiven. If somebody goes out and commits murder, and nobody knows who did it, and and they say, oh, I did it. Is it all good? They're done? They can go back to life? Uh, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not even the start. You know, you've got to have the repentance, the full confession, the new life, and even then you may still face the consequences. What is he talking about here with being faithful? I think we find it in the New Covenant promise, particularly in the Old Testament, where we find it in God's promises and his covenant all along, uh, particularly the you know, sacrifices for sin in the Old Testament were promises to forgive. And in the New Testament, New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. It's part of his covenant, part of his promises throughout all of history to forgive us, even though we are unworthy of his forgiveness, to forgive us that we might be his people. Now, notice that he goes on to say, that he isn't just forgiving us, but he's cleansing us. It is not enough to be forgiven if the guilt remains, if the stain on our soul remains, if the judgment remains. God is cleansing us. He's pure. He's perfect. He lives in unapproachably perfect, pure light. His holiness is such that he cannot walk with darkness. We've already talked about that previously here in 1 John. He cannot accept sin. There's that delusion going around today that people teach, oh, just as I am. Yes, he elected you just as you are, but he expects you to change once you have come to faith and knowledge of him. If he has put his spirit within your heart, if he has taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, if he has given his law to you and put it in your heart and caused you to want to obey it, then you're going to start obeying it, uh, just as I am with a huge change after, with a transformed life, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, so Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passes before Moses. Remember, Moses is hidden in the rock. He wants to see God. And was, the Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Oops. Pick up your stones and start throwing them if you're not able to understand this is what happens. Why does God say that? Some people struggle. Why would a child suffer for the sin of the father? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about in the first part, original sin. We know God has declared, Deuteronomy 24.16, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And they say, how can God put, you know, punish the child for the sins of the father to the third generation and fourth generation? How is that just? Well, the answer is, the only way that could be just is if the child had his own sin. And God is simply choosing not to show him mercy because his father was also wicked. Whereas for us, for the believer, our children may be shown mercy more than an unbeliever because of the faith of the parents. Uh, We all deserve God's wrath and curse for our sin. Uh, Even children die showing that they really do have sin and corruption as part of their life since they have a share in Adam's sin. And so he gives the children of the unrepentant, the unregenerate, what they deserve while being merciful to the children of God's children. That's the only way we can understand that from Scripture without getting angry at God and saying God is unjust. But many have said God is unjust and therefore we will reject what God is saying. And, you know, this part of Scripture is no good. It's evil. And this part is evil. And this is how we're going to make our new religion and our new God and our better God who does what we think is right. But who is the one who is infinite in his knowledge and wisdom? The true God, not us. Our hearts are darkened with sin. Our minds are corrupted with sin. Everything man thinks, particularly before salvation, is totally corrupted by sin. And even after salvation, there's a taint of sin in our reasoning. And we don't always understand these things. God is able, though, to be merciful to those whom he chooses to be merciful His perfect justice, however, requires the full payment of sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. Psalm 49.7-9, No man can ransom another or give God the price for his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on and not see the pit. Hell is real, and it's waiting, and it's eternal. Jesus says they will go away to eternal punishment. (coughs) And he describes that in Revelation 20, verse 14, as the second death, being thrown into the lake of fire, which is eternal punishment. That is what his justice requires. But as we saw in verse 7, and we'll see again in verse, uh, in chapter 2, Jesus paid it all for his people. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We know that the blood of Jesus, his son, has cleansed us from all sin. That is the hope. That is where John is pointing us. Walking in the light involves holiness. It involves understanding our sin, knowing what is sinful, confessing our sins. And that requires a night and knowledge of his word for what is sin. Now we'll be looking at the forgiveness part more next time, so I won't do that now. And since I'm running long, I'll continue on. Having shown us the way of hope, he puts the final nail in the coffin of those who are refusing to acknowledge their sinfulness and their corruption. He says, if we say we have not sinned, We make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. 
Now, this third heretical claim he's denouncing is that some men, well, maybe they were willing to concede the truths he's revealed so far, they might be willing to accept, at least theoretically, that sinning breaks their fellowship with God if they sinned. We saw that in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. They got, their fellowship with God was broken. They were cast out. A cherubim with a flaming sword and everything kept them from going back. They might accept, at least theoretically again, that sin does exist in their nature, in their disposition. And yet they may deny that they themselves practice sin. No, what I do is okay. What I'm not that bad. I'm not wrong. And they say they have not sinned. Of course, it's one of the most bizarre possible statements to anybody who's read the Bible, who knows the New Testament. The requirements are very complicated. And the Old Testament ceremonial law showed us that we can sin without really understanding that we're sinning. And indeed, the prophet says that you know, all, of my righteous, all of our righteous works are like filthy rags. We think they're good but God sees them differently because of his perfect holiness. James told us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. He's given us these commandments, and they're really the mirror to see our life. He goes on to talk about the, man, you know, the one who has the word but doesn't do it is like the man who looks in the mirror and forgets who he is. Uh, This is a requirement. And more than that, the gospel really requires us to understand our sinfulness. You remember in in Luke 5, 30 through 32, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well who have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, if we're not willing to admit that we're sinners, what do we need the gospel for? What do we need Jesus for? Why did he die on the cross if we don't need him, if we're not sinners? Paul also says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, in that great passage in 1 Timothy 1.15. Now, understanding that we are sinners is a critical part of the gospel, a critical key to salvation. I have a lot of scripture that I'd love to use, but I've talked too long already. This happens sometimes when I get excited. Uh, this, This truth, though, this sinfulness of man is spoken of throughout throughout scriptures, that Romans 3, 10 through 18 passage, there's none righteous, no, not one. Uh, goes on to say some pretty horrible things about mankind, but it's all true. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. First uh, Kings 8, 46 says, if they sin against you, and for there is no one who does not sin, and you're angry with them, there's no one who does not sin. Psalm 14.3, they've all together turned aside, become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah 53.6, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I could go on and on and on. Sin is real. It is who we are. It is what we have done. It is how we have lived our life before Christ. And it's something that continues even after we become a Christian, as Paul was showing us in Romans 7, that war between the flesh and the spirit. If we're saying we don't sin, we're saying something absurd. And beyond that, we're saying the one who has told us all of these things must be a liar. We're saying God lies when he says we're sinners. That's where John has led us in verse 10. There's no way you can deny the corruption of your heart. There's no way that you can deny that you were sinful from your mother's womb 
There is no way to deny that corruption clings to you. There is no way to deny that you sin even to this very day. And if you do, the truth, you're calling God a liar. The truth is not in us. And his word is not in us. Remember, we've often linked that connection between he who has my commandments and keeps them, he loves me. The one who does, well, in John 2, 4, he says, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, you know, sin is real, and not sinning means we don't understand his word, we don't have his word, we don't have his spirit in our life and in our heart if we continue to live a life of sin. We need to have his word in us through the knowledge of his word and through the submission to the spirit. And we keep it in us by, of course, repenting of our sins and drawing near to God and he will draw near to us. And when we call him a liar by rejecting what his word says, especially what it teaches about our sinfulness, then we don't know God. You know, as Christians, we often face a decision point in our faith. Do we follow human wisdom and human reasoning and human ideas? Do we allow them to define our beliefs? Or do we put our wisdom and knowledge to be insufficient and trust that what God says, even though sometimes it's hard to understand, even so sometimes it's hard to take, to accept that what God's word says is what is right. True faith is accepting it even when it's hard, believing it even when we don't understand it. Men sometimes think that until I fully understand this, until I approve it, I can't believe it. But what God has written in his word, what God has imagined and God has decided and God has done and God has said is done with an infinite mind. We do not always come to that. I know a lot of people struggle with the idea of original sin. They, they struggle with the ideas John is talking about here, about our corruption and our sinfulness and how it separates us from God. But clearly scripture teaches it and we need to embrace it. We need to embrace it, we need to accept it, we need to live our lives around the truth of it by confessing the sins and the corruption and the guilt and then seeking his forgiveness. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful verses, three of them which have taken us an hour, and pray, Lord, that you would bless the thinking about them and the meditating upon them to our hearts that we might, Lord, know you better, follow you better, trust you more, and live our lives more appropriately for your kingdom and your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.